Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm David Jenkins. And I'm Kyle Turner. On the show this week, Reddit takes on Wall Street in Dumb Money, and I spoke to its director, Craig Gillespie. Our motivator turns his talents to a queer western in Strange Way of Life. And on Film Club, it's Ang Lee's modern classic, Brokeback Mountain. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a little White Lies podcast. Kyle, I'm so excited to have you on the show. I've been a big fan of your work for quite a long time. But for those people out there, I mean, I can't imagine who these people are, but who who don't know who you are, <laughs> could you give yourself a little intro? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm a huge fan of Little White Lies and Truth and Movies. So it's an honor to be here. My name is Kyle Turner. I'm a freelance film critic based in Brooklyn, New York, um, whose work has been featured in GQ, W Magazine, and the New York Times. And I'm also the author of the Career Film Guide, 100 Great Movies That Tell LGBTQI Plus Stories. And I'm excited to talk about money and stock markets and queer westerns and all that, all that great stuff. Yeah, it, it does feel like quite um, a sexy week because like, I would argue that dumb money is basically all about cucking. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> like, but yeah, I, I want to hear more about this book. Tell us all about it. So you're going through this kind of centenary seem to be the, the theme at the moment. We've got the 100th issue of Little White Lies and you're going through what 100 films is it in your book? Yes, yes. It's 100 movies throughout queer film history, sort of like a 1001 movies to see before you die type book, but a chronological survey of queer cinema, um, starting in 1919 with different from the others, all the way up to, um, 2022 with Fire Island. And it's been a, a tremendous privilege. It came out in May and, and from, uh, Smith Street Books and Rizzoli and should be available from fine book retailers everywhere. Um, although I believe it's sold out on Amazon, which is both cool and uh, dismaying in as much as like hoping people are able to access it. But it's been a tremendous honor and I've just been very grateful to have the opportunity to write about something that I'm really passionate about and, and that I care a lot about because I've always found that film criticism and, and cinema more broadly has been a tool of self-knowledge for me. And so it's, um, especially in these times when in the Western world, there's a lot of anti-trans and anti-queer rhetoric happening, um, and it's uh, seeping into material policy um, in the United States, uh, at least what I can speak from here. And I hope that people are, regardless of whether they get the book or not, are able to find community 
and find objects and artifacts from culture that affirm who they are and give them an opportunity to explore what queerness can be for them on their own terms. Um, and so it's been a real pleasure to be able to share some of the things that I really care about because I've had the opportunity to program movies at different theaters in New York and also programmed a couple things in LA. Um, and it's been really, it's been very cool to share those those things that I really care about with new audiences. Well, I do have bad news in that like it's just as bad, if not worse, on this side of the Atlantic in terms yep. of, uh, of uh, yeah, that um, rhetoric. Um, not on this podcast, but certainly uh, throughout media. But I mean, like in terms of like queer cinema, are there any kind of surprising entries in your book? Maybe like ones that like films that people really wouldn't know about that kind of you do view as being part of like the canon? Oh yeah, I mean, like I have tried to no, not not to blame you or anything, but I I like to think of this book, even though it's called the Queer Film Guide. I like to think of it as a queer film guide. It's hopefully a starting point for people to develop a curiosity about the different forms and shapes that queer cinema has taken over the years. And so you have everything like classics, like Brokeback Mountain and and Moonlight. And Sylvia Scarlet and Bringing Up Baby, but you also have things like Jennifer's Body, Seat of Chucky, My Hustler, Tongues Untied, Paris is Burning. I thought that if this was going to be a, a an object or a, a, something that I was encouraging people to purchase in their home, that it should be a unique and idiosyncratic enough collection of films that they weren't going to find anywhere on the internet. Because you can Google best queer movies and come up with a hundred lists, but I wanted this to be both my perspective and also just like a an unusual one. Like I want to have something like Boys in the Sand, um, the Wakefield Pool art gay porno next to something like the Duke of Burgundy, uh, the Peter Strickland film. And so it was a, a really fun um, exercise to see like, what is it like to play with the idea of canon making in the first place? And it's also what I hopefully is fun, I think is fun about the book is that um, I actually cheated, and there are more than 100 films in the book. Each main entry, there are 100 of them, gets a sidebar recommendation, a wine pairing, if you will. And so there are technically 200 movies in the book. Well, I mean, you had me at Arch Gay Porno, sold. Yep, yeah. <laughs> but David, like, I mean, we did have a little bit of a chat about this last week, but you are now maybe relaxing a little bit into the fact that, like, the Little White Lies 100th issue is now out there. Relaxing? What? What is that? I don't know that word. I don't know. When I've worked with you, I've found you replying to emails at, like, 11.30pm, <laughs> so I do worry about you, David. I've also gotten emails from David, like, on a weekend, and, like, what are you, what are you doing? That's oh, just how yeah. I roll. That's just how I roll. But, you know, I like, I like to just keep on top of these. But you, you two are exceptions. I'm very bad at emails, as, as some <laughs> other listeners may know. So only, only the VIPs get that treatment. So, yeah, no, I'm, I'm relaxing a little bit, but it's really nice to have the 100th issue kind of out there now and there's been a been a bit of you know few responses from it and people people seem to like it which is which is good and the idea now is that we don't necessarily want to rest on our laurels and you know sweep it aside and, and, and move on to the next one and and i think it's 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 actually you know working in the world of print media it's very easy to once the magazine is out 
to just switch off and move on to the to the next project and and be like think you because you're think you're kind of thinking in this cyclical way and you know your mind just shifts over to what's the next creative project i can do and sometimes and it's really hard to be like oh no you have to keep talking about this and nurturing it and promoting it and doing things to actually remind people that this thing is out there still while simultaneously doing the other magazine uh, hence the midnight emails you can get the magazine and, and, and you know i don't necessarily want to talk too much about what's inside the magazine because i think it'd be cool for people to discover that on uh, for themselves but suffice to say that i think we've got some really amazing texts in there we've got some amazing interviews lots of lots of directors that we love and have talked to talked with through the years have kind of connected with us again and talked about their kind of formative epiphanies and we have a lot of people talking about this idea of when when they first had uh, looked through a viewfinder of a camera and what they saw which is quite a, a kind of fun novel unique thing to hear about filmmakers but we're also doing a little film season at the at the Prince Charles. Hannah Strong presented Inside Lewin Davis last night. It's it's three films that have all uh, were all Little White Lies cover films in the past. So we're doing Inside Lewin Davis. I'm presenting George Romero's Land of the Dead on 35 in, in at the end of October, and uh, Adam Woodward is doing Todd Haynes' Carol on 35 as a kind of lovely christmas special so yeah that's that's the thing we're doing we're also doing a maybe this is a sort of first time announcement for for some people but we're also doing an exhibition in uh, collaboration with london film festival london film festival has a lff for free strand during the festival they have like free events and walk-in things that are happening throughout the throughout the city and and something like uh, aligned with some of their key venues and we're doing a, a little white lives 100 exhibition at um place called sea containers down by oxo tower it's called the coin street gallery so drop by we're going to have a hundred magazines all original magazines hung, hung on the wall with the new covers presented and framed as well so we're going to be down there we're going to record a live podcast we're going to do an event and we're going to talk about making the making magazines in the in the sort of 21st century the financial imperatives and creative uh, stresses of doing that so yeah I'm going to stop now because that's that seemed like a lot, but I, I feel like I packed a lot in there. I'm sad yeah. I won't be able to attend, but congratulations <laughs> as a longtime reader. Spiritually, you you will be there. I hope. I I definitely I will mean, be there spiritually haunting different <laughs> um, vendors. Well, I mean that does lead us on to well not so much a haunted film as like a film about like the cursed landscape that we currently live in. Good <laughs> yeah, segue. We get a move on. <laughs> Thank you. I'm a pro. First up, it's Dumb Money. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. Dumb Money is based on the true story of a group of ragtag investors from the Reddit page Wall Street Bets, who banded together to put a squeeze on at least two hedge funds that betted that GameStop shares would fall. But before we get into the film, I spoke to its director, Craig Gillespie, about his stranger than fiction tale. This is kind of the end of a bit of a tour. So it was Toronto and then kind of what traveling around yeah, New York the whole- and out here no but there's more we're going to go to uh, we're going to the San Sebastian Film Festival next week and then the Zurich Film Festival uh, do you enjoy that side of things that kind of like festival yeah. tracking around 
Um, I try to. <laughs> it's 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 both like you know it's it's so it's such a bizarre relationship you have with your work where it's like it's so personal. It's like you're so in the trenches with it, working mm-hmm. with actors, working with your crew, and it's such an intimate process. And then you've just got to sort of throw it out there and see what happens, yeah. <laughs> see how it's received. Well, I mean, that I've seen everybody seems to be like really enjoying it, yeah. but it's it's that kind of strange thing. So I think when people come to something with anything to do with finances there's a bit of like i don't understand any of this will i be able to like no that was uh, that was part of that was part of my learning curve as well i'm Mm -hmm. not involved in the finance world but i got to live this this phenomenon with my son who was living with us at the time during covid he was Mm -hmm. 24 and he uh, started early on in wall street bets and did really well with it oh wow timed it perfectly got very similar to the college students in the film mm-hmm. got out that morning the next morning uh, Robin Hood which was the app that you would buy the stock with put a freeze on it and it created the stock yeah. people were outraged so I lived through all of this with him and that intensity and seeing what was happening online with the 8 million followers mm-hmm. that was the way that I approached this story God, that, I mean I do remember it kind of happening at the time and saying to my husband that the same thing happened with Bitcoin where it's just like yeah. should I get in on this and he's yeah. like if you've heard of it it's already too late like it's, you need to be it's like true. early days and then I did that I got into it <laughs> after all of this after seeing what he was doing but um, this this was kind of this was a little different than than like the Bitcoin situation because mm-hmm. this was what was this was about, and I think it it happened because of COVID, and COVID was such a profound change for all of us, mm-hmm. and the loss of lives that were happening with loved ones, the loss of work, like businesses folding, small businesses, and this real lack of government aid that was happening in the United States. There was this real disparity of wealth, yeah, and that frustration, like landed, like directed at the stock. There was eight million people that that started rallying around this. And realizing if they pumped the stock up, it was really going to hit Wall Street where it hurts, which is in their wallets, mm-hmm. as well as they get to make some money. So they're really like, in a way, it was a, it was this kind of protest, this financial protest against what was happening. And then when there was a freeze by Robin Hood on that and Reddit shut down Wall Street bets, which was this, this forum for everybody talking, that anger and frustration at, at feeling like the system is rigged and then having this... Like, this actual physical evidence of of what was going on and then having it go to Congress, they, that really, really resonated with me. And that's something I wanted to be able to leave the film with. Yeah. I mean, but you also kind of don't shy away from the fact that there's a lot of, like, not great stuff on Reddit. <laughs> like, that's you have to. It's like we would have been, I think that's, it's like, you know, yes, they refer to themselves as apes and degenerates. Mm-hmm. And they took themselves, uh, I, I think in some ways, the, the core group of, of Wall Street Bets was, was almost about like, this un-PC world and platform that they were on. When this movement started, it was 400,000 people, I think, on Wall Street Bets. In that eight weeks leading up to the stock reaching an all-time high, it got to 8 million. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of people that came in that didn't reflect that, but we needed to show just the environment that it was in 
and and the way that everybody communicates. So out of the gate, yeah, the movie kind of hits you in the face with that. <laughs> Gotta say, I also really loved the. I mean, like, I guess there's kind of like the kind of hyper masculinity, kind of like joking around of Reddit, but like that combined with like the hip hop, yeah. I like really kind of loved that sort of tongue in cheek masculinity. There was and it's, the the wealth of of just of footage that we had to pull from. It's mm. like all of the memes in the movie, all the TikToks, they're all real. Oh. Yeah, wow. and it's all, you know, they're all actual memes that were happening at the time. All the news anchors, AOC, like all those interviews, the Dave Portney, the mm-hmm. Elon Musk interview. It's all the actual interviews that were happening right then in that moment. Stephen Colbert talking, it's like that's what he was saying. Yeah. So we managed to be able to pull all of these, all of these clips to sh- the White House press conference. Mm-hmm. It's all the actual footage and give it a context of just the scale of what was happening. I mean, how do you approach something that's got that scale? Because not only we're talking eight million people involved, all yeah. these different financial people involved, politicians involved. How do you like pare down what's actually going to like give the like most interesting kind of story within there, this? It event? was it was both a it was it was both an advantage and like a disadvantage in a way. It's like the one thing we realized, which was interesting, and this happened a lot in post. I worked with Kirk Baxter, uh, the editor on this, who I hadn't worked with before. He's done. Mm-hmm. You know Finch's movies for the last David Fincher for the last seventeen years, and we've worked briefly in some commercials together. But it was almost like we were doing two movies. Mm-hmm. So we had the film that we were doing, the drama and the scenes, which is very straightforward, and then we had this like unwieldy like tiger trying to grab by the tail. That it's, it could be anything we wanted, yeah. and that was an exploration in in post to sort of figure out when do we introduce these memes, when do we introduce the mass media because that came later mm-hmm. in, in the story like, like you know what do where do we how do we use the exposition in the film and we actually had started out having the exposition a lot of it was with the actors mm-hmm. in the scenes and we realized in a, in a nice way we can take that off of their shoulders and stay with them emotionally and put the exposition into these tiktoks and into you know like uh, newscasters explaining the context and you got the the nice added bonus that you get the the real world context of what's happening yeah, I'd be, I, I'm kind of really glad that I've uh, done a big deep dive because it just seems to get weirder and weirder the closer you get into it. And you're just like, well, what do you mean that's what happened next? And then it, the community still exists as like kind of a, oh, like yeah, a strange... It's, it's out there. And now I, I'm, I'm hoping they like the film. We'll see. <laughs> They're going to have a, a strong voice in it. And we, that's like... And that was part of like really trying to like honor the community in a way. Yeah. It's like we knew that they're going to be the, 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 the vicious detractors or advocates for it you know mm-hmm. it's like it is a huge community i think one of like honestly like one of the strangest details is like you mentioned david fincher but you also have that double connection because the is am i right thinking the winklevoss twins were also involved in the film that's then it's sort of like <laughs> two steps removed ben okay. mesrick who wrote the social network mm-hmm. uh, the book and he also wrote the anti-social network which this film is based on so through him and having a, a deal with them, mm-hmm. they came with the book. Oh. oh, okay. That kind of makes more sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, oh, you're obviously collaborating with Seth Rogen um, again. You know, having yes. like, and I loved Pam and Tommy. But like, I mean, what is what is it that you kind of enjoy about like working together? Seth is like, I, I, you know, he's such a, a versatile actor. It's like, obviously, he's he can do the comedy, but he's also like done some beautiful dramatic things in Steve Jobs, for instance. Mm-hmm. And getting to work with him on uh, Pam and Tommy, which was really a character and not 
Seth Rogen as yeah. we know him which and and he was he he really did such a beautiful job with that and I was excited to work with him again and what I loved in this one is we're, we're casting him against type mm. like you think of him as the everyman you think of him as the sort of lovable jokester in, in a lot of ways and in this one he plays uh, Gabe Plotkin from Melvin Capital which is the guy that, er, that, that the whole Reddit community is going after mm-hmm and the stakes are very high for him and very real, and it's, it's actually much more of a dramatic role. Um, online, he's absolutely the villain. So I, it was important to me, and it was inherent in the script that, that, that Rebecca Angelo and Lauren Shukabloom wrote, that the, it's all gray. Mm. These are all individuals. It's like the system is broken. Yeah. The system is what people are taking advantage of. But I, I thought it was important to remind us that he's like a human being with a family, you know, and, and, and just uh, he's trying to do his thing like within the world that, in the context of how he lives. So I needed him to be accessible, and Seth has that. Yeah. There is something just very infuriating, like no matter how likable the person is, but just that that kind of class of people kind of didn't do the pandemic. Like no. they just didn't. It, it's, completely, this is a, it's a, a completely different lifestyle. They're completely oblivious to the, the real struggles that are going on mm. and the reality of it. And it was, it was, you know, there was, there was that disparity. And that was part of the whole COVID um, opportunity as well, to be able to show that, how it affects the different classes and it took just down to them not having to wear masks with their staff walking around in masks mm. you know or being in florida where nobody wears masks yeah well <laughs> we have for multiple reasons <laughs> um, yeah i mean so paul dano doesn't he doesn't look that much like keith gill but like what was it that you saw in him that made him right for that paul is uh, is such an unbelievable versatile actor mm-hmm. That year, he had Batman and the Fablemans, like that range. Yeah. And I was, I'd always you know, loved Paul's work and was very familiar with it. The only thing I hadn't seen, and um, my son suggested it, was Swiss Army Man. Uh. And it's, it's such an unbelievably sort of like joyous, innocent performance that mm-hmm. he has in that. And there was that quality to the actual Keith Gill. Like on his post, he has such a joy with what he talks about. He sits down seven hours a session, like mm-hmm. once a week, and can talk about stock. But he talks about it in such an earnest, like, playful way and, and is so vulnerable with it. And so I really wanted that accessibility. And when I saw that performance from Paul, I was like, wow, that's the quality that this guy has, that, that there's just there's just no cynicism in that performance from that character. And I think that's why there was 8 million people that were rooting for him because the Internet can be really tough on, <laughs> on people. So to have 8 million people sort of identify with him and recognize that and trust him, that, that's what we needed in Paul's performance and I, you know he did such a beautiful job yeah I mean it is that thing of it almost does become a cult but like it doesn't feel sinister because no. it's got that kind of you know like he's got a sincerity he's, he's not trying to be a leader he's just he's just standing by his own convictions and it's you know, he goes from 55000 which is his life savings, mm. which he invests and he's, he's married with a child you know with a one year old so they've got a lot at stake and he gets to $49 million. And people are just, like, waiting to see what he's going to do. It's like, because he's been so invested in this, he's been preaching it for a year, advocating for it, and now it's happening. So he just, by default, becomes, like, the lightning rod that attracts all of this attention. It's it's kind of a difficult thing to believe that people really wouldn't just sell. (laughs) It's this very complex situation because the reason that the stock's going so high is because they're all holding mm. which makes the stock go higher because of this because uh, of Seth's character that has put a huge short on it so mm. he's trying to drive the stock price down and then they get to drive it up and because because of that they've got to hang on 
till the last second. They're trying to figure out when that will be, when it reaches its peak. Mm -hmm. um, and it just keeps escalating. So there's that inherent tension of like, when's the moment to get out? And like, if you sell too soon, you'll be kicking yourself because you see like, I mean, literally the day that this really happened, it went from $100 to $400 in 24 hours. So the, the, the amount of money people started making also because it wasn't just, it's just dealing in stocks, they were dealing in options, which is a whole other yeah. <laughs> conversation. But the very basic idea of the options is it can be like 50-fold like what mm -hmm. your investment is. So that's how you can have, you know, Anthony Ramos starting with $146 and going to $200,000. Mm -hmm. um, and so those stakes are in, incredibly high and life-changing for them. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of a thread that was like very interested to me as someone that is actually also tangibly being affected by like GameStop being undervalued. I mean, was that based on a real person? Were they oh, that's good. Gabe Plotkin? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, he's uh, that's it's a he has the company has since gone out of business. You'll see mm -hmm. at the end, there's a testimony of him at the SEC, which was verbatim what we used in the film. Um, but it, they ended up uh, losing, not to give anything away, but they, you know, he ended up losing $6.7 billion. And ultimately, the company folded like six months later. All right. Well, <laughs> final question. Are there any, I mean, like you've kind of, you know, I, Tonya, kind of changed her image so much. And then, you know, obviously with these were kind of, and I think with the Pamela Anderson, we're sort of really re-examining these people and events that people think they know but they don't really i mean is there anything it's, recent that maybe like you'd like to take another look at um I, I i just wait to see what you know what presents itself to me it's mm -hmm. like i try to stay open and it's so much about the material and and uh, you know in this case that was the script that came in that they did such a beautiful job with so i don't know what it's going to be it could i could I keep trying not to stay in this world real world and, and venture out but then i get attracted to projects that are kind of fascinating and this was one of them. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a uh, you know, truth is often stranger than fiction. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the wild part of it. Yes, they did. Act he did actually. Uh, Pete Davidson's character did actually run naked for a mile in a thunderstorm. <laughs> yeah, I can believe that though somehow. Like, that, that that was entirely like didn't have Plausible. to have a second. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. <laughs> So Kyle, this is kind of a very, very recent piece of history. I think most of us kind of vaguely remember the time that like Reddit took on Wall Street. I mean, how how much did you understand about this story when you were coming into this movie? <gasps> uh, oh my God, almost nothing. I don't understand the stock market. I am not as financially literate as I should be as a 29 year old. I'm better, uh, one, I, I think that like for the most part, our education system does not encourage financial literacy in the United States to, I could have done it myself. Also bad news for this side of the Atlantic. It's not great. <laughs> uh, to, I didn't really understand what was going on, when it was happening. And I didn't really care. This was like a side of the internet that I, uh, even as I consider myself extremely online, I'm not that online. And so watching the movie, I just kept thinking of this one YouTube video that came out during the GameStop thing as it was happening, and it was done by this comedian, Avalon Penrose. And the video is titled, A Normal Person Tries to Describe the GameStop Thing. And it's very funny, and it's this very bright, chipper, young blonde woman very excited to explain it. And then as she's explaining it, she realizes she does not know what she's talking about and she looks like she is about to cry. And that's how I felt the entire time watching this movie. And she's like, I don't know 
what's going on. I don't understand how any of this is working. I can't tell if I'm too stupid or the film is not doing a good enough job. And I did feel, I, and I've seen The Big Short, which, a movie that I quite like. And I was thinking, I really, it would be nice if like some celebrity paused and looked me straight in the eye to explain it to me like I was a child. And so the problem that I felt watching this movie was, was that this um, ongoing feeling that there was a simpler way to frame it without having to lose like the, I guess, the nuance to um, the financial aspect. And that was the idea that it's a gambling movie. Like, I understand gambling. I, I love playing poker. I have a monthly poker game with some friends. I, I don't gamble much outside of that, but like, I'm sort of like nominally interested in those intricacies and whatnot. And as opposed to sort of like breaking it down or at least framing it as a bunch of players sort of trying to beat the casino, which is said like once very late into the film, they were really bent on trying to preserve both the uh, the internet aspect of it and the Wall Street aspect of it. And I was like, I don't, I don't really care about any of these people. I, I think Gillespie sort of set himself up with a difficult job in terms of trying to articulate this sense of community, especially not only in a time when like we are all isolated, but also in a time when community is such a diffuse term that exists on the internet across different backgrounds, different landscapes, different um, terrains, et cetera, et cetera. And so it felt like two different kinds of movies, neither of which were necessarily fully formed and that like one was a, a like a gambling movie and the other was like a movie that was trying to articulate the language or the aesthetics of this side of the internet this being reddit and like 4chan and whatnot yeah i i kind of came in with like almost at the opposite end of the spectrum i don't understand money at all but um elena lazek who was a previous guest on this thing recommended a podcast to me called if books would kill and they did like an incredible incredible deep dive into like the whole of reddit gamestop phenomenon so i came into it knowing like an intense amount of detail and knowing kind of the aftermath as well so i wasn't kind of really there for information i was kind of there for like the weird little character actor turns that everybody mm-hmm. did but I, i'm amazed that you were not at least warm to like anthony ramos like he's so charming in this as like the the GameStop clerk yeah. who puts all of his like family finances on the line. Yeah, I love that for him. <laughs> I I mean I liked when he was doing the savage TikTok dance. What well what's not to love with that, David? I mean like where where did you come in with this? Like did you have a good sense of what had happened with this um, Reddit take on of Wall Street, or were you kind of coming into it with just like a vague memory of like oh that was a thing people talked about online for a bit? Mm. I mean, I was kind of like, I didn't read, I was vaguely aware of it happening in the background when it when it happened, you know, as with most things like NFTs and all these kind of things, I'm, I'm sort of like, I'll make what maybe one attempt to, to work out what's going on. And if it do, if that doesn't doesn't happen, then I'm just going to back off and carry on with my life. And that's that's kind well, of what NFTs are this. over. It turns out they're worthless well, now. So yeah, we didn't we we don't need to know about them. We need to learn that. Yeah, what a surprise! Erase it. Anything you've learned. <laughs> but I, I guess I, I was probably maybe coming to this as I, I mean I think my interest was more in the kind of Craig Gillespie tourism. You know, he he's a kind of new tabloid dude now his whole thing seems to be to take these quite ostensibly trashy stories about american public figures like 
Tonya Harding in I, Tonya and Pam and Tommy and make make these kind of like quite glossy dramas quite you know they, they're, they're quite trashy in many ways but um, there is a sort of hint of you know seriousness and trying to kind of mind something deeper about what these stories are saying about society and and whatnot and it seems that this is a natural fit for him in that it was this kind of cultural phenom that burned brightly very quickly and sort of faded away and I guess that the creation of this film was very much a race against time and it seems that enough people could see the I guess the sort of the bigger arc and the bigger what this says about society and what and how how this episode could channel into into what is the film's ultimate message very early on i mean it, it you know it's the, the the app that they use is called robin hood and there is a sort of robin hood like you know steal from the rich to feed the poor kind of vibe to what's going on here and the the, the idea of the film is you have this character keith gill who uh, aka roaring kitty that is his online avatar who does these um stock market videos on youtube and people like him because he's very open about his bets and his and and what he's what he spent his money on and he shows his you know he has his balance sheet as his background in the film he's played by paul dano and paul dano does this very kind of quite sort of laconic charming you know he's he's you know quite you know working class father of one who who self-taught in the world of finance and has 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 just had this kind of you know he's had he's had this thing that he wants to to follow you know he's 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 had an idea he's 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 had a bit of a you know he's done the math and he thinks yeah i'm gonna just do this and what he's done is he's spotted that these big hedge funds that are kind of like corporate jackals in many ways looking for the corpses of you know soon to be failed corporate enterprises in this case, a, a, like a sort of high street computer game store called GameStop, who I, I imagine are they are they quite ubiquitous in the US or they, is it sort of yeah. a mall thing? Um, they're fairly ubiquitous. They are in every mall, and um, even in New York, there there are like individual brick and mortar stores. Yeah, so he, they're betting against these companies, and then the the idea is that they will kind of dive in when they fail they dive in asset strip them and and they make their money off of that off of those but this this guy is he he's rallying these people online to buy stocks in the company despite the fact that you know it it has been earmarked as one that is is destined to fail and he's driving the stocks in the other direction so he's actually making the the stock the stock prices go up and up and up and up and that is hitting back at the uh the hedge fund investors and you know the film kind of documents this pressure point where we get to see some you know you know there's there's i guess it's sort of like there's a sort of basic enjoyment in seeing you know slick wall street jackal types feeling harried and 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 stressed and and they're losing like millions if not billions of of, of dollars due to this little this little guy and his and his webcam and yeah the film is i think the film is ultimately sort of there are no real winners in the end of it like it the film is essentially about how i mean sort of decrying the fact how the 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 people with the money the people at the, the people in wall street the people who kind of like to do these things on their own without the scrutiny of 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 like the dumb money which is what the the title refers to which is the sort of small small fry investors they can very easily kind of manipulate things from behind the scene and move the goalposts and the 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 whole idea of it is that the the little man can never win in these situations even if they are ever seen to be winning then that will be considered a loophole which will need to be closed quickly but you know it's it's kind of interesting in that sense in a sense and i think that 
if the film is effective on any level it's kind of it, it kind of provokes a sort of sense of anger and, and injustice but i'm not sure it's not it's not maybe a, a massively surprising emotion to be feeling about 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 this kind of subject matter see my problem with the movie is that i didn't feel angry enough like to me and this is maybe due to not being as financially literate all this feels like very very abstract and it's like i i understand the idea definitely of like different kinds of ceos exploiting different systems to make more money but i wasn't interested in the way that it was trying to engage with the ceos betting against something like it because it was it felt like so intangible um it felt like the stakes were like very very ephemeral and even when i think some of the characters who decide to uh, to hold um and not like sell their shares they're like oh we have this money but in theory like they don't actually have anything unless they sell so it i don't know it's it seemed like a little too ephemeral to me although i am definitely on board with the notion of like a sort of craig gillespie autourism having not seen pam and tommy but i've seen his other films one of the things i really love about i tanya is that even though it is occasionally like thuddingly blunt there is like kind of a a snarl to it it has the pure force of tanya harding and margot robbie's anger fueling it whereas like i none of the characters here felt interesting enough to to power through some sort of like fury um that would sort of set the entire film alight i mean what was what i find interesting about i Tanya is that like there's the direct address and i think there's this like nod to the idea that we are looking at this artificial recreation of events that are that's totally tied to this woman's subjectivity and this is i think trying to play it a little bit more objective and more docudrama and i just I, there wasn't enough like um formal ingenuity here and i don't think collaging a bunch of tiktoks counts as that but i th- i think this the subject matter itself is kind of detrimental to that like it's it's so complicated that by by having kind of like you know unreliable narrator or presenting it from certain vantages or perspective you're kind of you're you're adding another layer onto an already like super complex set setup so it's kind of lose lose like the stock market yeah exactly indeed i'm coming into it with like i mean admittedly i mean i'm saying like this like an i'm an expert i listen to a few podcasts on the subject but I, I i kind of came into it like knowing the aftermath quite a lot and so what i kind of understood of this is like not only is this kind of like a takedown of like this toxic wall street world but this is a formation of a cult like if you look at the state of this current wall street world they genuinely believe that the gamestop stock at present, if they sell, will make every single member of that Reddit community the richest person who has ever lived. And that is statistically true. Like, this this is what they sincerely believe. So, like, I kind of, I came into it being like, I am watching kind of something toxic form in relation to something that is already very very insidious so i kind of knowing the conclusion maybe i just actually had a lot of joy in kind of looking at the like kind of character performances i really like sebastian stan in this i think pete davidson has like the range the size of three millimeters but this was about it for him (laughs) 
Like, that worked. I liked America Ferrara. Did you? <laughs> I just I just like America Ferrera as a presence on my on my screen. Like she doesn't get to do a lot and I think one of the problems with the movie is the way that like establishes its ensemble is that the, these people don't know each other and so they have to very quickly establish like where they exist on sort of like moral spectrum and why we should root for them. Yada 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 and so um they all end up being like different versions of archetypes while most of the focus is on Paul Dano and um, Seth Rogen. It seems more like the the film probably would have been tighter if it had focused on those two characters, even though the sort of communal aspect of the internet is like an important part of the event itself. I just think that Gillespie's attempt to look at working class America in this film just doesn't, it doesn't feel as um, authentic as it has in his, in some of his previous work. Well, I think that's very fair. But Carl, do you want to get some scores on this before we move on? Um, in anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect, out of five. Um, I would say three, three, two. Oh, I do want to note that the, the use of hip hop music in this is wild. So wild, considering so like good. most of the most of the like the music is very good. Most of the characters in this movie are white, and it's like the they're trying to approximate some. They they keep using the term gangster, and they use it to describe Paul Dano's character. Like you're a guy behind your c- computer. <laughs> but yeah, this is kind of what happened to me. I have to say, when I was pregnant, I used to play DJ Khaled's um, "All I Do Is Win Win Win" into my pregnant belly, just so my kids would come out like super confident. Like, I feel like that is actually the way that you kind of drive ambition. <laughs> I love that. Um, David, um, Sorry, that's a weird detail to share with listeners. Uh, David, what about you in terms of scores? I'd probably go same. It was a sort of enjoyable little diversion. I don't think it's going to be anyone involves like favorite film on their own CV, including Craig Gillespie. I mean, I I, I think it's if someone said, "Should I see this?" I'd be like, "Yeah, I think I think it's worth you know it's it's worth ninety minutes or so." And you know, I think it gives a sense of this kind of these big financial ructions that are happening, and that it's not all just evil Wall Street types being being evil. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm probably at a I'm, I'm going to cheat because I'm allowed to. <laughs> um, probably like a two, four, three point five. Yeah. I, I thought it was I thought it was really good fun. Um, I thought it was very interesting. I liked the use of kind of that whole thing of like when will they gonna sell as like a tool for suspense. And I gotta say, Carl, I didn't like America Ferrera in this at all, <laughs> but everybody else. And like the jump scare of Dane DeHaan taking off his COVID mask and revealing that it was him with races. Like, when have I felt joy like that? Before? Oh, that was Dane DeHaan? You didn't realize that was Dane DeHaan? No. Oh, my God. You just saw the braces. I just saw the braces. Okay. Well, that's <laughs> fair enough. Your, your comment makes me want to have a child by a surrogacy and have them play the Flawless remix. Well, if, if, if I'm here on this earth for nothing else, like, that, that, that'll be a solid... <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, next up, let's get into Strange Way of Life by Pedro Almodovar. Cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. After 25 years, Silver rides a horse across the desert to visit his sheriff, Jake. They celebrate the meeting, but the next morning, Jake tells him that the reason for his trip is not just to go down the memory lane. So, David, this is Almodovar's second foray into English language. Uh, he did a short with Tilda Swinton. I don't know. I think it was like two and a half years ago, kind of like it was early pandemic. It was a very much a pandemic film. Now that he's kind of freed of those constraints like what did you think of strange way of life i really liked it actually and and, and yeah i mean I, it's been interesting to see that a bit bit of a reaction i mean I, I say see a reaction look at look look at my followers on letterbox who are maybe a little bit cooler on it than than i am i kind of found that it that it's you know it's it's a very it it, it does a lot it's a it's it's kind of a half an hour film and I think it, it manages to capture and do a lot in its 30 minutes. It's although it's sort of described as a queer Western. I mean, and that that applies in the sense that it is about a, a, a gay couple who are kind of rekindled. And it's it, I mean, it's very apposite that we're talking about Brokeback Mountain after this, because it, it almost feels like a little bit of a precursor to, to Brokeback Mountain. Like, you know, you, you could see how these stories connect in some ways and and Almodovar was you know it was a film that at one point he was mooted to be making himself so like this this almost feels like a little bit of a belated nod to, to that the film that could could have been it keys more into his tendency towards melodrama and it is more of a kind of florid circian melodrama than maybe than it is a film that uh links to you know anthony mann or john ford and the kind of classic western makers another film it reminded me of and i'm uh, that he's talked about is um a johnny guitar nicholas ray uh, especially in its kind of you know use of these very very bright reds and yellows You've got uh, Saint Laurent, who've done the the costumes for it, which are all very gorgeous. There, there's there's a, there's an element of anachronism to them, and like and like a sort of modern like modernist winking touch to it, and which which also comes through the production design, where you have these these quite although you, although the settings are very much keyed into the classic western like shacks and prospecting towns and corrals and things like that. You know, you have these guys, and they've got these very strange strange paintings on the wall immaculate production design and 
I think that I just found it I found it very moving, especially the the script is very pared back and um Ethan Hawke's character has this incredible final monologue that that you think is going to be this long speech but ends up being this very kind of pithy comment and and the film sort of just fades out and it's a very very beautiful ending I found but I mean, you know, I, I would caveat all of that by saying that, you know, I am very few Pedro Almodovar films I don't adore. So, you know, it's going to be very, very difficult for him to make something that I'm not kind of, if not on board with, then psychologically forcing myself to be on board with. So there. Yeah. One of our filmmakers that don't miss. I mean, like, Carl, for you, like, I mean, obviously there's kind of films that are about queer people and then there are films that actually kind of don't just take queer people and insert them into, like, heteronormative narratives. I'm like, was this kind of something that actually explored something that was, you know, more subversive than just kind of doing, I suppose, like a Pride and Prejudice, but it's two men or two women, <laughs> you know what I mean? I um think that... He is trying to do something along those lines. Um, I one of the reasons why I love uh, Amadevar is for his ability to really interrogate and deconstruct um, our attachment to genre and the way that he just sort of amps up every every component and every trope to be as blazingly conspicuous as possible um, to help us recognize those elements of storytelling and the way that they often shape um, identity itself. Um, I think he's quite similar to Todd Haynes in that way, honestly. But I just was not on board for Strange Way of Life. It just feels, this and the human voice just don't feel um, as adroit or as refined as I want them to be. I think this is better than the human voice. There is a little bit more of a textural quality to the production design and the cinematography, but even then I was hoping for something like weird. It's not very weird. And even though he's placing um, the melodrama within the Western, I think a lot of Westerns do have melodramatic components within them, like um, My Darling Clementine and True Grit and Johnny Guitar, as, we were as David mentioned earlier. And so this just felt like it felt a little slapdash um, at times. And maybe that would have been fixed if he were, if, if the film were longer and there's more time to sort of massage out the different genre components that he is trying to call attention to. Like the, the way that the, that Pedro Pascal and Ethan Hawke talk about the past and talk about their, um, who they were as, as younger people and the fact that they haven't, um, spoken in over 25 years. The way that that is presented just feels a little on the nose and indelicate and sort of devoid of either poetry through the camera or poetry through language. So I was just uh, fairly disappointed. It was just, it was, it's not bad. It's just like fine. It just feels sort of insubstantial. And I wish, and, and I also have this impression that like Amadavar has gotten a little softer and more sentimental with age because even though a lot of his movies spend quite a bit of time looking towards the past, there's always this, like, edge to it. He's always, like, playing with something to to uh, keep the audience on their toes about how we think about memory and how we think about the past lives that we have either lived or could have lived. And um, here, it's just very soft and, and kind of banal and a little bit, ends up being a little bit domestic. 
and this is following in a trend of like Julieta and pain and glory and the human voice where it's all like very, very sentimental in a manner that I don't especially care for. But what are you going to do? I'm, I'm happy that he's been being given the money to make these, but I hope he is able to bring on someone to like work on the script with him a little bit more because it's just not there for me. The best part is Manu Rios singing, honestly. The, his, his green eyes are really beautiful. Oh, yeah. I, I have to say I was utterly charmed by it. I do fully understand where you were coming from, but it just, those sort of like rapid fire tonal shifts like really worked for me. And I, I, I just found it like an utter joy. But do you think there was something maybe lost in him coming into the English language, like a little bit of poetry maybe? Yeah, I imagine that some of that dialogue would sound really gorgeous in Spanish. But in English, it just sounds very, very direct and blunt. And it's not helped by the fact that I don't think Ethan Hawke and Pedro Pascal have any chemistry together. They're both giving like different kinds of Elmodovar performances and neither of them, like Ethan Hawke is is trying to be like a little bit grittier and more naturalistic. And Pedro Pascal is like very effortful in the way that he's trying to signal to Ethan Hawke that he's there to flirt, that he has this desire and feeling. But it's, I, I just don't really buy that there's a connection between the two or that they're able to sort of key into the way that Almodovar channels or, or articulates desire and yearning, um, especially between like two long lost loves, which is like a favorite theme of his. I don't believe the two who were ever together, never mind like rekindling anything. Well, perhaps that's just kind of like my flights of fancy of the like, I truly believe that I have such intense chemistry with both of those actors that kind of perhaps that, you know, it, it, they didn't need to have much together because it was, you know, I was bringing that all to the equation. I'm sorry to be such a hater um, on this podcast. Yeah. No, not at all. I mean, you're you're so phenomenally insightful. I, I I'm questioning my taste. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, don't question your uh, taste. This is your uh, truth in your movies. But David, like now, I mean, we, we've had these tentative steps with the Human Voice, and now a Strange Way of Life. These kind of shorts with Amadeva going into English language. I mean, are you excited for maybe this kind of like second wave where he's going to come out of a Spanish language? Because I'm I'm kind of in two minds myself because I just want to watch lots of. Penelope Cruz and Antonio Banderas collaborations with him. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 interesting. I, I, apparently, he's going to do a trilogy of shorts, and they're going to all potentially be released as like a single film. So, like, I think he's going to try and maybe reverse engineer some connectivity between this and and, and Human Voice because I, I I have to say I don't see that much on currently, but maybe that maybe he'll do a third one which will make make them all kind of coalesce in a in a way. I mean, in the words of Aretha Franklin's gowns, beautiful gowns. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, I mean, he was set to actually do a do a movie of uh, his first big English language movie was going to be an adaptation of the of Lucia Berlin short stories, um, a collection called uh, A Manual for Cleaning Women. I don't know if you've ever ever encountered those, but they're brilliant. They're about they're about kind of uh, the sort of stories of a, of a catty and insightful cleaning lady, and uh, that that was going to be with Kate Blanchett, and that's no longer happening apparently, which is which is really sad because I remember I. I interviewed him for when he came when he came over for parallel mothers and uh and i said how excited i was for it and he and he he seemed very excited for it too back then and but now it's not not happening so i I don't know what his current plans are but yeah i like this film and i do understand and accept criticism on it i I know that makes me sound very haughty but like (laughs) (laughs) yeah this i think the pleasures that i got from it were the kind of quote marks 
that it uses. And I think even down to the dialogue and the chemistry there was and, and the translation into English emphasized the fact that he, he is, as you say, paying homage to genre, requoting, recalibrating almost the cliches of, of the genre, but with this with the with the kind of queer twist and and you know it's the little twists and the and the little changes that he's making in the backdrop and the and the with the use of music and 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 you know there's almost a kind of comic element as well to it i mean it's there's, there's a sort of absurd comic pastiche element to it as well like you know almost blazing saddles-esque kind of meta commentary on 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 westerns that, that i enjoyed as well but yeah i guess the chemistry element um I, I mean, you know what, I, I, I will say more of a general point is that I don't have the ability to judge chemistry on screen. I don't think I've ever thought <laughs> they have chemistry, they don't have chemistry. I just, how do you judge that? Um, not even Tony Leung and Maggie Chung and In the Mood for Love. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess that, that you know. You know what, there was one recently, Cat Person. Yeah. Uh-huh. That is like the most anti-chemistry bullshit I've ever seen in my entire life. Like th- that had all of the sort of like sexual tension of like a prostate exam from your grandparent. <laughs> like, Don't threaten me Jesus with a good Christ. time. Wow. <laughs> It's more you can see it when it's not there, right. I think. Right, right. Yeah, I would agree with that. Or it's like porn, you know, when you see it. I see, definitely see what you're saying, David. And I wanted more of that. I wanted more, more and bigger and louder quotes. Like, that's what's interesting about queer filmmakers taking on traditionally heteronormative genres um, because they have the power of not only sort of inserting ourselves into it yada 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 but taking the things that that audiences take for granted as uh, cliches of heteronormativity and turning them on their head or deranging them in some way or making them so much weirder and more apparent that they are part of this like broader construct of how we learn how to desire and and um, navigate the world and whatnot. And I just didn't feel that that was as um, strong or as pointed as it has been in previous work, like at Broken Embraces or uh, um, Women on the Verge or anything like that. It just felt like a little tame for my taste. But again, Manuvrios looking in the camera, I honestly like think that the film could have just been that one shot. And I think it, it would convey like the most interesting t- thing to me about the movie beyond that shot is the meta narrative around it that this is like his chance to do the movie that he he didn't get to do to play with the genre and the form in the way that he was not that he, he didn't get a chance to do back when he had the opportunity to do so yada 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 um and that there's like this melancholy like the sentimentality of his last like bunch of movies is paired understandably with a sense of melancholy and a sense of aging and, and a realization of life and love's sort of finite quality. And I think you get that all in Manurius's fate and his eyes. Like, he's, I think he's able to convey that paradoxical mix of, of wanting and not having and being able to, like, look deep within the audience's soul without having to do, like, a ton of work. And I I really love that one shot. And I think it is able to say everything that the rest of the film, I think, struggles to do. Well, I personally like it when a film in its final moments just kind of becomes misery. Uh-huh. Um, but Carl, do you want to put some scores on this before we move on to a queer classic? Um, I would say three, two, two. 
being very stingy today, if I like it. This is, you know, <laughs> you, you're, you're, you're fulfilling the criticism element of critic. <laughs> David, what about you? I'd probably give it fours across the board. Yeah, I think I'm probably at a five, four, four. I can see what you're talking about, Kyle, in terms of like the lack of substance, but perhaps I am able to just take a little style of a substance and something like that emerald green jacket just brings me to such a level of joy when I'm watching Pedro Pascal. <laughs> and, you know, it's a it's, it's a film that zigged when I thought it was going to zag. And that's something I always appreciate. Yeah. Next up, it's Film Club. In 1963, Radio Cowboy Jack and Ranch Hand Ennis are hired as sheep herders in Wyoming. One night on Brokeback Mountain, Jack makes a drunken pass at Ennis that is eventually reciprocated. Though Ennis marries his longtime sweetheart and Jack marries his fellow rodeo rider, the two men keep up a tortured and sporadic affair over the course of 20 years. So yeah, I think my only note for this is like, how the hell did Crash win Best Picture over Brokeback Mountain? I'm still angry. It's been, what, has it been 20 years? It's been about 20 yeah. years and I'm still angry. I That was the very first um, Oscar telecast that I ever watched. And I remember the reaction. And even at home, I I don't think I'd seen enough movies to be as um, invested in the whole horse race of it all. But I was aware that Brokeback Mountain was a good and a, an important movie. And I think I had seen it on DVD at that point. But when they announced Crash, I was like, what? What's going on here? That was like wild. I remember sitting on like my my um, burgundy carpet that we had in the house, watching the TV in the living room, and just like this is not correct. What's going on here? Yeah, what were we on in two thousand and five that this could be overlooked? I mean, such stunning performances from Heath Ledger and. Jake Gyllenhaal. I mean, like, does it bother you at all, Kyle, that these, like, kind of something that is, like, an iconic gay romance is played by two, well, at least publicly, straight actors? Ah, my favorite topic. Uh, Gay actors playing gay roles. My opinion is that I don't care. If it makes sense for the story, there there are other people involved who um, who are making these casting choices, um, and if they believe that it is right, for the story and the actors come in with empathy and a desire to commit to whatever the guiding vision of the project is, then sure. I think there are definitely lines to be drawn, especially with regards to um, casting trans characters. But uh, one of the things that frustrates me about that conversation and discourse is that it's really centered around the idea of employment opportunity. Like the desire is for people in front of the camera and behind the camera of marginalized communities to be able to have the power to tell their own stories and to assert presence uh, within an industry that has previously uh, kept them out, which I think is absolutely necessary, absolutely needed. I, I don't think anyone will have any um, arguments with that. But when when people essentialize it to this person must be of that same sexual identity, you do have to call into question, like, what does that mean to perform as a gay person or as a queer person or as a lesbian? Yes, there are like cultural signifiers, but lots of those cultural signifiers don't apply to lots of people living in different spaces or communities where it's either not acceptable or it's not the dominant language in which those people communicate with one another in those communities. So I 
I think it is, um, I, I think that conversation needs a rebrand and a focus on being able to encourage and argue for queer people to be part of the creative process more holistically, um, whether it be as producers or screenwriters or directors or cinematographers, not just as actors, because I think there are so many, and not just for directors either. I think um, as long as people are committed to doing the research and, and going in with good faith about whatever project it is, there are so many examples of, of actors playing queer characters who, like, just because, also, like, just because you're gay doesn't mean you're a good actor. There are so many bad gay actors, like Neil Patrick Harris. Sorry. Um, yeah, pretty terrible. Um, but Ang Lee, I mean, it was... Uh, Mountain Worst Hedwig with the angry <laughs> inch, I'm going to say on record. <laughs> Ang Lee's Brokeback Mountain isn't even the first time that he's extended his interest and his desire to share stories from queer people. He made The Wedding Banquet in like 95, I believe. Um, And that is the story of like, a gay Taiwanese white couple in New York, uh, one of the the Taiwanese half getting married to their like tenant because she needs green card. And it's this um, really delightful farce um, about the clash between like, modernity and tradition and whatnot, but um, Ang Lee is not publicly facing a, a gay or queer person. Um, and the actor in that, I don't think, was either. Um, but Lo- Joe Lichtenstein, the son of the um, artist, Roy Lichtenstein, is in that movie, and I believe he is gay. But anyway, my point is, um, it doesn't, like, the fact that, it, 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 what is more important is that Heath Ledger and Jake Hall give really great performances. Although I think the best performance goes to Anne Hathaway. Not that wig. I'm sorry, Kyle. You could see a performance behind that wig. You're a better critic than I. The, the wig is... Well, I'm I'm sorry. I mean, Anne Hathaway's wig gets best performance. Okay. <laughs> David, you said you, you don't recognize chemistry, but like, surely you can see the chemistry between Jake and Heath in this one. Yeah, maybe I'm being a bit silly asking that, but yeah, I'm, I, my, my chemistry radar is, is off. Yeah, no. I, I just to go back to what what you what you guys were talking about just then about gay actors, and I would say like not that the film needs defending in this way, but like there there is a certain aspect of it that feels appropriate where you have this you know ultra masculine backdrop of you know male kind of cowboy kind of in, in the sort of post trad cowboy era they're now kind of looking after sheep rather than steer and it kind of feels appropriate that the unlikeliness you know of these of these characters happening to mine that that sense of their own kind of emotional depths and desires kind of means that for them being played by you know outwardly straight actors does does almost have a little bit of a thematic resonance as well like i i hadn't seen it since it came out i i saw it in the cinema when it came out and you know just it was it was part of the you know there was a really big there was a lot of hype around it and it was you know it was considered the front runner and i mean i don't recall them in much detail but i do definitely remember there being you know a pre- social media outcry about you know homophobia and you know you know a a gay story could never win the big prize in hollywood because you know it's it it would be a turn-off for too many people who who are interested in 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 the academy and what their values are I, i i actually 
suspect that it losing helped to kind of start more conversations than maybe it would have had it won and sort of push push things forward for the future for, for, for films like Moonlight. I mean, I guess I think watching it again has made me kind of yearn for the, the Ang Lee of Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, Wedding Banquet, oh, so and, and you know, the, the, yeah. the, 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 oh, the God, Ice Storm, Man, Woman. Crouching Tiger even. You know, like there was an era sort of late 90s, early noughts where he was like super reliable filmmaker you know you he was gonna you know at the very least he was gonna do something really interesting and a bit and a bit weird and he's kind of i don't know what what his deal is at the moment but he's kind of fallen into this kind of high frame rate 3d world that just doesn't seem to suit him at all really don't you Uh, dare besmirch the name of gemini man in front of me (laughs) yeah well you know get your check king as they say that from the podcast but like (laughs) But yeah, you know, I know it's a, it's very, very centrist dad of me to say so. But like, you know, I, I, I would love him to kind of go back and, and, and do, I guess, a kind of, you know, this this kind of very Eastwoodian film. Watching it again, definitely, you know, I thought, you know, I'd love to see this double build with Bridges in Madison County. You know, it's got a kind of robustness and it's very it's a very slow film. It's a very detailed, delicate, assertive film that, that just is focused on very small details. I mean, we, I think we could just go on about it forever. I think the, th- the, what, the one thing that I really, I really, you know, that got me back into it very, very quickly is, so the first half an hour of the film is the kind of the coiled potential romance between these two guys, Jake Gyllenhaal and Heath Ledger. They're out up on Brokeback Mountain doing their, uh, their shepherding. And most people will know in, in advance of seeing the film where it goes and what it's about. But I think it introduces their desires in, in a really quite remarkable and subtle way. And I feel that Ang Lee has told the actors to not project it and not show it. And he's actually kind of showing it through very, very subtle camera moves and and framings and choreography rather than having them overtly signpost where things are going to go and when when it does eventually happen it, you know it's a cold night and you know they they are kind of upholding their their sort of macho ideals and one of them's in the tent and one of them's outside the tent even though it's freezing cold so they come into the tent together and yeah it's very sudden and quite surprising but actually no it makes kind of makes sense at the same time and it's yeah i mean it's it it kind of builds this this real kind of like emotional bedrock for the film and i think that seeing seeing it kind of play out over decades is fascinating and moving and yeah i I think michelle williams is great before like in a kind of role before she really broke out if i have one criticism of it maybe maybe this is a bit weak but it's a film that i didn't feel the passing of time like the, the the i don't think it does enough to suggest that time has passed is the only real barometer of that is the children that they have growing up. There's a bit of facial hair. There's some sideburns. It doesn't do a lot to give a sense of, of a, of a sort of sweeping tragedy that's occurring over this large period of time. That's, that's probably my only big criticism of it. I guess because Heath Ledger was so kind of like my generation's teenage heartthrob that like almost going back to it, it's like there's a sense of mourning in that passage of time. Like watching him in this feels so precious knowing that like how little else we'll get, if that makes sense. Um, But yeah, before we move on, Kyle, any last thoughts on Breakback Mountain? I really, uh, the thing that really appeals to me about Brokeback Mountain 
is the it's like the thing happens and then they have to deal with the ripple effects of how it shapes their sense of interiority, how they are sort of questioning their own sort of masculine ideals through the rest of it as they like have a family and are in town, yada, yada, yada. And so I really struck by um, that attention to detail, how you can see like that kind of internal ambivalence shape how they're interacting with different people when they're apart from each other, when they're leading their own lives. I'm going to try not to break into tears. I just feel so sad now. I miss Heath Ledger. Um, And the final scene in this film just stabs me in the heart. But yes, um, okay, you guys are going to perk me up with our final one last thing where you're going to give us a non-movie recommendation. Kyle, what is your non-movie recommendation that you're going to give listeners this week? My non-movie recommendation is Agatha Christie's Poirot with David Suchet, the the great actor to play um, Hercule Poirot. I've been on a murder mystery kick lately, and by lately I mean the last two years. And there is something that is both extremely comforting about how certain and how um, reliable murder mysteries are. They have a structure, you know, that justice will eventually be served. They're pretty standard, like, morality plays. But I think what's really interesting about watching the series chronologically is that you see um, the change in creative direction as it was being passed from, like, ITV to A&E to, like, whatever. And it goes from, like, a much more, a a, a somewhat, um, like, refined or like mustier version of like of of art deco style and then as it gets into the 2000s you see that they're doing this proto prestige aesthetic um where you've got canted angles and extreme close-ups of like random objects and insert shots and um this is also when david shea was getting like really calvinist so the show gets really really religious at the same time um and that version of murder on the orient express is with jessica chastain a young jessica chastain uh gets really really um jesusy and that is very interesting because it allows some of the darker elements that are in Christie's books to really come to the fore um because even though we are familiar with Agatha Christie and and those sorts of murder mysteries as being cozy watches. I think she's actually quite a capable writer in terms of examining human nature and how um, cruel and evil, the kind of cruel and and evil that that lurks within all humanity. Um, And what I like about this series is the way that it finds different ways to channel that through its visuals and through its settings and and also guest stars. There are like lots of random people you would not expect um, to show up in these things like Michael Fassbender. But yes, my recommendation is Agatha Christie's Poirot, which is streaming on BritBox. Oh, yeah. I'm in so in such agreement with you, even though I actually think that the recent Haunting in Venice was probably the best of the series. I don't understand why they have to start every Poirot movie or brand feels the need to do it with like Poirot is really over being a detective and it's the same thing they do with Bond where it's just like he doesn't want to be a spy anymore (laughs) and it's just like we can have 
more of an arc than this. My cultural highlight is, this is a bit of a weird one, but a couple of weeks ago, maybe over a bit longer than that, we talked about on Film Club, the Merchant Ivory Morris, mm. adapted from E.M. Forster novel. Yeah, Hugh Grant's and peak. With, yeah, and with, with Hugh Grant. And I was enjoyed that. And, and I had a bit of serendipity when I, I was having a drink with my friend who told me that Howard's End by Ian Forster was his favourite book of all time. And so I was like, well, this this is this is too much. So I... I I recently picked it up and I'm reading uh, Howard's End uh, by Ian Forster. I'm, o- I'm only halfway through uh, at the moment and I'm going to try and sort of wrap it up this weekend. But I mean, I don't think we need to go into t- <laughs> to Howard's End it's right now. Very but good. It's a it's 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 extraordinary book and and uh, you know I I, I will probably I've, I, I'm going to pick up Passage to India and probably read that next. So yeah, I'm 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 Forster pilled. Well, I mean, as as you should be. I've got God, I love how it's ended. Okay, maybe that's maybe I'm not taking on any new culture. Maybe I'm just revisiting both of those. Actually, <laughs> so if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email Truth and Movies at TCO London or tweet us at LW Lies. Next week, it's Man versus AI in The Creator. It's Man versus Sadistic Puppet in Saw X. And for Film Club, we see how the horror franchise got its start in 2004's Saw. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Kyle Turner and David Jenkins. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. 